Hey guys, welcome back to the Shakespeare series with MyEntertainmentWorld.ca. I, as always, am your host, Kelly Bedard, and today we're talking about Timon of Athens, which is not the most popular play in the world. It's probably something you don't know as well as some of the others. It has been produced relatively, I mean, relative to, to its history, it's been produced a lot lately, actually. It was in the Stratford season last year. It was also in the Folger Shakespeare Library season last year. And that's a production we're going to get into a lot in this episode, because I'm talking to two of my oldest friends, Jesse McCarthy and Owen Schmidt. They're a married couple based in D.C., uh, and that's where the Folger Library is. So you're going to hear a lot about that production and the ways in which Timon has really found a new residence in 2017 that maybe didn't have when it was originally written. So that's an interesting conversation, even if you're not super familiar with the play. It's a relatively easy plot to follow. So it's an interesting conversation regardless. Um, I'm excited to talk to them. Jesse and Owen know a ton about Shakespeare, huge Shakespeare fans, have really looked at it from an academic point of view as well as a performance point of view, so they'll have a really interesting perspective to bring to the series. Um, make sure to follow us on Twitter at MyAntWorld, also on Instagram. Check out the website, MyEntertainmentWorld.ca, and we're also on iTunes, My Entertainment World. We'll find There you can find the entire feed for our podcast with multiple series going on. Lots of one-off episodes, as well as the entire Shakespeare series as we move along trying to get through all 38 plays. Talk to you on the other side. My name is Owen Schmidt. Um, I did Shakespeare starting in fifth grade at elementary school. I did a production of As You Like It, where I finally got to uh, take the role of the older brother and, you know, feel the power because I am the younger brother in my family. Um... Uh, from there, I kind of kept on the side of um, theatrical stuff for a little bit. And then I went to Baltimore School for the Arts, uh, which was a conservatory uh, style training for uh, high school students in the city of Baltimore. And then I continued to do student theater in um, college. And I guess all of that's in parallel to the fact that I did a lot of fight school training. So, yeah, that, that's most of my background. Hi, my name's Jessie, and like so many things in my life, Shakespeare was introduced to me by my grandmother, my Mimi. Um, it's interesting because very rarely can we point to this one person who defined us so much in our sort of development, and I can easily, easily point to my grandmother. She, she basically introduced me to almost everything I love, and she would keep these wooden boards that she had bought somewhere in like the 1950s for her classroom she was a school teacher with various speeches from Shakespeare on them um, most of them got pretty destroyed because children in classrooms will destroy things but she had Hamlet's to be or not to be speech on it and I would read it all the time uh, I didn't actually deal with any theater or you know working with Shakespeare hands-on until I went to college where I started working in both student theater and community theater. And I do still kind of engage with Shakespeare in my work today because um, he touches on so many things and he has this wonderful kind of ability to span across culture. And in my work as a historian, I deal with culture a lot. Um, but I just never stopped loving him. Even when I went to see a production of the complete works of Shakespeare abridged and got pulled on stage to be the screaming Ophelia and the grandmother who inspired me actually heckled me from the audience. So love Shakespeare through that <laughs> even. 
Hey, I got I had to be the guy sprinting across back and forth across the stage at oh. a different production. Oh. Um I suppose I didn't actually answer why or how loving Shakespeare. Um given that uh it was kind of one of those early things to get into, just kind of I enjoyed it. I had fun. So it was kind of a a a love of just having fun with something. So I, I needed to add that addendum. <laughs> So you guys, so the way this series has been scheduled for the most part is I've reached out with people to people who I really enjoy talking about Shakespeare with and asked them what play they wanted to talk about because I really wanted people to really pick something they were passionate about. Obviously, right off the bat, all of the really popular texts were grabbed. You know, we had people fighting over Hamlet, multiple offers on Macbeth. You guys uh, picked a timing of Athens, which is, uh, let's just say, a little bit off the board in terms of a, a popular pick. Um, the I've started all of these with a short Wikipedia synopsis. So just for anybody who doesn't know the plot of time, and which, frankly, is probably everybody, um, it is about the fortunes of an Athenian named Timon and probably influenced by the philosopher Timon of Phileas. Uh and the central character is a beloved citizen of Athens who, through tremendous generosity, spends his entire fortune on corrupt hangers-on, only interested in getting the next payout. Would you guys say that is accurate? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so my next question has to do with why it's so rarely produced, why we can expect nobody to have actually heard of Diamond of Athens or let alone seen a production. They did it at Stratford this past season. It was one of the best productions they've done in years. I thought it was fantastic. Give me one good reason why it's not more popular. Uh, what? When was the last time you saw a visual version of it? Was there a movie, television show? Was there something based on the story? Um, that, that might be a little bit of a clue. But um, I'd also argue that to a degree, um, it Shakespeare didn't necessarily produce a lot of original stuff. I mean, he was a genius with his use of language, but he stole his, well, arguably not stole because of the, the time period, but had stories from so many other places. Um, so he wasn't necessarily using original material. So if you're looking at the story in kind of a, ju just kind of boiling, boil away the language and just look at the plot, it's pretty simple. It's, um, it's, borderline ridiculous in a weird way ironically it's still satiric almost more satirical now than probably the period of shakespeare which i think we'll get into later um so like it like these things combine into the fact that when you do look at the language of the play it's kind of a mess in my uh, not so humble opinion um when, when you're going through and reading the text, you're looking at all these different names and it's like, why do any of these things matter? Why do any, why do I care, you know, who Theocrates is? Or, and that's not even the person's name. Like you look at it and I can't even remember having just reread the play yesterday, like what the characters' names are outside of Tynan, essentially. It, it's basically a mess. Um, and it's kind of a simple story. Like you could really cover it in 15 minutes if you needed to. And I think one of the reasons Timon isn't oft performed is I think the world like culture has been kind of biding its time for Timon. I mean, Hamlet, you get why people connect to it. Romeo and Juliet, you get why people connect to it. But Timon is it's a strange play and its relevancy really comes to bear in this social media driven world. Because I mean, one could be, you know, 
look at how kind of time it interacts with people and, you know, wanting people to like him. So, you know, giving them things and then in like the second half of the play flipping to, you know, hating people because they appeared to be fake in this situation or they were fake in this situation. I think that really translates into the social media world, you know, dealing with people through these indirect interactions and, that really wasn't something we as humans had until the past 20 years. And so it's, I think Timon's going to find a new relevancy in this digital world. So is that why when faced, cause I asked you guys really early on in the scheduling process, you could have picked any one of 38 plays. Is that why you went with Timon to talk about right now? Uh, a little bit. I mean, um, we, we recently saw a production um, and we were really struck by it because it, w- it was an admirably well done production and it really got us talking like that as you're leaving the theater. And w- when you can't put down a subject and you keep returning to it, you know there's a lot of weight there. Um, and I know I said earlier that, and, and Jesse was just alluding to it, um, that there's this level of it seems more relevant now than probably anything that had to do with Shakespeare's time, and it's kind of, it and kind of these things together struck us in such a way. On top of the fact that knowing that this was going to be a series, everyone was going to jump on, you know, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the, these big, great, famous ones that are, you know, relatively clean works. I said earlier that timing is kind of a mess of a play to read. So it also gives you an opportunity to kind of take Shakespeare off of this pedestal and say, hey, you're a writer, you put this play together, and, you know, you can really engage with something that doesn't necessarily have all this, you know, um, gravitas behind it. It's just this piece that you can look at and say, huh, I thought that was batshit stupid. Oh, that part was really interesting. So the fact that it's actually something you can engage with assuming you can get past the language in to some degree. So that, that would be my standing. And it's, it's rare when you're a Shakespeare, you know, someone lover, when you're a Shakespeare lover to walk in to a theater and be hit with an entirely new performance and new experience and new connection. So time and, you know, I'd skimmed it once looking for a quote from it. And then I saw it performed live. So I went in with, you know, a loose knowledge of the plot, very little knowledge of the language, and got slammed by this experience that was entirely new to me. I just remember um, one of the speeches when he's sort of in his angry at humanity phase towards the end. It's, you know, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous speech, and I'd never heard it before. And it was in a play that had some um, uniquely... Uh, interesting language choices at times that are a little bit kind of suck you out of the narrative because it's an odd word choice to get such a beautiful speech and just kind of be swamped by it and it's to be entirely new to you when you love this playwright so much it's it's a reason to pick time and it's um it made me look at it twice when I never thought to look at it before and I've come to like it a lot uh You've both brought up these. Oh, sorry, I, I, would, I would just add one additional thing that one of the things that's, um, I guess I would say academically interesting about the play is uh, we assume Shakespeare wrote some of his plays with partners. Um, you, you can follow theories. You can, well, there's also theories about who Shakespeare was, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and 
I think uh, one of the things that Jesse just mentioned that and how like you can you can be listening to it and suddenly be pulled really far out of the play because the la- the language feels weird. You feel like either this was you know Shakespeare not writing at his best or someone just took over this scene and you're like okay this isn't really up to snuff of the rest of the time. I mean that that was kind of my feeling. Ultimately, I, I feel like there's a lot of work that a director has to put in to kind of make it, you, you can make it a solid production. We've seen a solid production of this, but you need to have a really strong director who's willing to engage with it and, and say like, I don't need this part and confidently cut it out. So I, I just wanted to add that part in. Well, you guys have both talked a little bit about some of the strangeness of the language that's used in this one. And you mentioned that it's not one of his stronger works. The, I mean, up for debate, obviously. Um, but talk a little bit. Do you have specific examples of what you mean when you say that's odd word choice or it's not necessarily up to his usual writing caliber? It's one of the things that like Shakespeare is kind of you know, the reason he's quoted so much is he's got some great one-liners. And I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to reduce Shakespeare to the length of a tweet. Um, but he does have those great kind of zingers. And sometimes in time in the language, it's just really simple. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's not a complex piece. They're not going for complex ideas. One of the characters speaks entirely in verse and never has a single couplet, even on his most important lines, which is a little bit unusual. And maybe it was a purposeful choice, maybe not. And sometimes they go into these speeches um, and you're read like you're hearing them and you're like, I'm looking at the, you know, pandering people in the beginning, the poet, the painter and the jeweler. And they're talking and you're like, are you conveying thoughts or are you just talking um and some of the lines like they look fine when you're reading them and you try saying them out loud like the painter says tis conceived to scope and like that's hard that doesn't flow and this is the introduction to the play these are the first three people we encounter talking and their lines sound like tongue twisters and you're just like okay that's it that's an unusual way to introduce a play with bad writing yeah (laughs) and and, and I, w- I would argue that, and the, this opening is actually a really good example that not every, and Shakespeare was writing for his audience for his time, and they're, they're going to pick up language cues that we're not going to, and obviously we don't have all the staging directions, but you read a lot of, a lot of the text and you're just like, why are you taking up this time? Like you're not even moving the story forward. I said earlier, when, when you boil out the language, the plot is simple. It's because, well, on, honestly, like it feels like there's not a whole lot going on here. Yeah. There's really only three major so, points or something like that. Gives away money, asks for money back. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny because it's like they had this simple plot and, um, people argue that Thomas Middleton was the other author on this one. There's arguments that that's the co-author, and you can see some marks of his language in it, and Shakespeare's as well. And it's almost like they're like, oh, yeah, this other person wrote this play about time of Athens, like, and they made money. We need to get on that. And they <laughs> started, like, writing it, because, I mean, yeah, this was how they made money. This was their job. Um, but then you know we were harping on the language a little bit because it's not it's not like the tempest or you know 
these other ones where you're just known for the language. It, it's simple, but I think to a modern audience, that might actually have a benefit. It might be why it's not so beloved. But when you go in and you watch this play, you're not drowning in metaphors. You're not having to struggle to figure out what people are saying. They might say it really weird. Sometimes it feels like they're talking Yoda. But you you can just sit back and just kind of coast through and just enjoy the play and what's being performed in front of you, which is, it's nice. It's, it's a, it's a kind of a easy experience. I, I'm about to make a, a, a statement that might be apocryphal and, you know, I might get hate mail over it, but um, Shakespeare wrote for his, the using a language that was understood by the people of the day. Mm-hmm. I think, I think Timon is one of those plays where you could update the language. You could, you know, say, you know, this is a rewriting of Shakespeare and actually, you know, take it and start putting in modern text in some places and actually would make the play better. Um, I'm going to probably come back to this point the whole time because I think it's actually what struck me back most about the play is the... The story, the the satirical implications of today are so a kind of amazing for a piece that's 400 years old that you can just, like, you can see this being a modern work. So you almost want it to have modern language. And when you are too tied up in the language, like, if, if you... You kind of have uh, an all the way engaged and you're like listening to every word or you're pulled out and kind of just getting the gist of it. When you're halfway in between, the language is kind of tripping you up. So you either have to be good enough to know like what, what is every character saying? What, what, is their, what is their story? What are they keeping? You know, why are they talking? Which isn't always easy because there are a lot of minor characters who shuffle out and unless everyone is a unique person, like you, you might get confused who is who. That, that actually tripped me up in one of the productions I saw. Um, well, I think the kind of vagueness of the secondary characters, not to like totally take you off track, lends to the overall vibe of Timon, the reason like we find it applicable because you know there's Timon and then there's all these other people wandering around stage and it you know I, I've made the parallel of social media in the digital world and that's what social media does there's you and then there's all the people responding to you that you can't see that are just names on a page and Timon definitely has that feel so I think the idea of modernizing it I'd love to see a project where someone tweets time and out like you know they just literally go down and like tweet time and out and like they have like a twitter chat of a staging of time and i think it'd be so (laughs) relevant in a weird way because it's that kind of overwhelming sense of being surrounded by people but being isolated comes through very much in time and like the only person with really good speeches is you know him and then the traditional philosopher jester character that you see in here Mm. a little bit and the men's servant yeah. Um, anyway, my my original statement of like I would love to see I I, I agree with the the tweet out Timon. I, I think it would be weird, but at the same time, like I think it would be a really interesting project. <laughs> In parallel, I would like to see a modern language version of this because I mean I. I Again, in rereading it recently, I was like, oh god, the language of this is kind of a mess sometimes. <laughs> so. I did. 
Is there any rhyme or reason to where the language is a mess, though? Like, you talked specifically about the panderers in the first scene. Is there some sort of contrast between them and someone more authentic, like a Flavius, the, his main steward, who is, you know, the one person who's really truly loyal to him in a sort of Kentish, Pisanio kind of way? Um, is, there, is there some sort of what might be if we're giving Shakespeare, you know, benefit of the doubt, something on purpose to the, are you really even saying anything floweriness of those insincere people versus someone who is a bit more genuine? Um, I I would have to take some time to actually pull out specific examples, but, uh, but you, you mentioned the kind of the unnamed characters bringing up uh, statements, um, whether they're kind of, if they're just kind of like, blubbering at you and, and no not exactly like for instance the characters when when Timon is asking for help and he sends people out to go uh, you know ask my friends to you know help me out because I've always been helping them they're saying very specific things and they're actually for for being characters you want to walk up and slap on stage um they they're saying relatively well constructed speeches and yeah I'm, I'm speaking about a specific set of characters um but like it, it 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 belies the idea that people that all the characters are just kind of uh, speaking a mess. So I I may be harking on this a little too much uh, unfairness, but it kind of was a flavor that I had throughout the play to a degree. Um, and and I would point to the second half of the show when he's kind of uh, gone into uh, exile outside of the city, and I just kind of remember. Um, in the most recent production, just kind of like catching only every fourth word kind of thing. Just like, I, I, I not only don't necessarily know what you're talking about to a level, I don't care what you're talking about. Like it, it, it wasn't necessarily that the show was dragging along and not saying something. It was just being communicated in a way that didn't engage me as an audience member. And that, and that may have been my own problem for not understanding the language and, you know, collaboration with the director, not necessarily finding a way to communicate it well, but, to a degree, a director is working off of a text, so. And you asked us to point um, sort of towards, you know, giving Shakespeare the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's doing this on purpose. Um, Apomantus, the philosopher, he's the touchstone kind of character, this, you know, humorous commenter. His language stands out unique, mm -hmm. and it could be either done on purpose because, Let's be real. Shakespeare loves that kind of writing that character. He gets he loves sinking his teeth into those sort of, you know, humorous philosophers. And his language stands out. It's really well written. His points are great. He's given a lot of kind of asides. He turns and he kind of makes these beautiful asides. At the same time, like Flavius, the, you know, noble servant, the one redeemable good character in this play, um, he does a lot of like shout at the heavens kind of things like, oh, Lord, this. And then he goes into a speech or, oh, how unfortunate for poor Timon. And like he does a lot of the like, oh, hark to the heavens kind of thing. <laughs> and I don't know. It's, you know, a good actor could really make that character seem sincere. But it's it's odd that you know, this is the one sincere character. And to the modern 2017 audience, I struggle sometimes with reading that language and pulling that sincerity and then when i see it before i'm like oh yeah flavius is the good guy cool so 
So you guys have only seen, you know, as Owen pointed out earlier, there are really no, there's no film versions, not, no adaptations, that sort of thing. You guys have just seen the one production. I've just seen the one production. How do you think it's this play is best approached in 2017 in terms of actually staging it theatrically, short of actually rewriting the language? How do you make it accessible? Uh, and how do you sort of move around some of those um, language barriers that are I there? I think oh, one of the things for modern productions. So um, so the one we saw was at the Folger Shakespeare Library. And then National Theatre in uh, the National Theatre in England. So they did one of those National Theatre Lives with a time in. And one of the things they kind of did is they pull a modern equivalent for you so you know in the national theater live timing gets a room dedicated to him in a museum it's the timing room um and this you know amazing sort of oh you know the sponsorship of the arts and in the one we saw it's this idea of very tied to digital things you know the person had this it was this ultra modern you know star trekky looking set and people are using these very ultra modern like ipads to transfer things. There's no physical exchange, which is unusual in a play that's about the exchange of money so heavily that modern stagings don't actually throw money around. And gold is a major motif in the play. And you don't really see a lot of physical gold on stage in the two ones I'm looking at. Um, it's, you know, I hesitate to say this because I often like really simple views of Shakespeare, like actors and a stage and language. But... Timon is one that benefits from a, a bit of a heavier hand with staging, which, you know, it's, it's rare. Again, like I say, I generally like my Shakespeare with just me, people, and language. To see one where someone gets to kind of test a more complete vision. So I think that's a really unique thing about this play is letting people both play with language and staging um so to stick it on stage i think you need a little bit heavier set a little bit heavier on the props um a little bit heavier on movement coordination and you know if you're going to stage it you have to sort of make sure you've got people grouped on stage they can visually tell the characters apart because <laughs> they can kind of blur together and that's a unique thing because you know Normally the language stands up for itself and in time and you actually have space to play with both your staging and the language, which is appealing. It's, it really is because it's, you forgive them if they set time in on the moon, whereas you would never ever forget it, forgive anyone for setting, you know, <laughs> King Lear on a space station. Like that's, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I would ever forgive anyone if I walked in like King Lear bounced out in a spacesuit. I'd be like, and I'm done. Whereas if time and bounced out in a spacesuit, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to give it at least a scene before I render judgment. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of Lear, plot-wise and certainly the, the type of actor that you're going to give uh, Timon of Athens, the title character, there are a lot of similarities between these two texts. And I might even argue that part of Timon's uh, unpopularity comes from the fact that Lear is so popular. So it's almost like people thought, well, we don't really need Timon. Do you see those parallels? And how do you think that Timon really has a place uh, 
um, as a separate I mean, entity in a world is where Tymon King Lear the bargain rules. Ben Lear? Maybe. Um, and it may be skewed by my first time encountering the language <laughs> is the Tymon was young. I mean, it was I, the Tymon we saw was a man in his, you know, 40s. And really? yeah, he was quite young, um, super athletic. Really? Fit. I mean, he was doing flips on stage at one point in the version we saw. So, I mean, we are informed by the first we see. Huh. Um, and in this case, the time when I saw was young. So I think you could honestly make time in any age, especially because he makes the mistakes of pride that an older character like Lear would. Like you could easily, I could easily see time and played by someone, you know, who's traditionally the Lear age, a much older individual. You could put a 20-year-old on stage as Tymon, and I would believe it equally. I, I would believe Tymon, young, old, because he kind of makes this quintessential human mistake that's inherent to human nature, the desire to be liked by others. And that's something that I don't think we ever step away from. You know, when we're six, we want to be liked by others, and when we're 66, we want to like be liked by others. And that's, that's that sort of fault not fault that's the wrong word trait that time and personifies so i could see him as any age so yes he has a lot of similarities to lear but i think you could play him a lot of different ways which makes him really appealing because you can see yourself in time and really easily no matter who you are no matter your age and really no matter your gender sometimes as a woman it can be hard to connect with these male figures in shakespeare and to be completely frank time is a play without women there aren't women in this play. They don't, there's not a feminine voice in this. So to have a play that you're can sit in the audience as a woman and be like, you know what? I really connect with this character. Like I could see myself in their shoes is kind of an interesting thing with that. So I hadn't, I can see the Lear connection. I'm not sure if that's one that I would have naturally jumped to. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll throw in um, one quick aside. Think, oh, sorry, go ahead. Are the, are there, Prostitutes are the prostitutes are supposed to be women, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but yeah, clearly uh, undesirable characters on the stage. Um, but undesirable, <laughs> barely speaking characters. Yeah, they they they're 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 practically set dressing. Um, <laughs> um, the the. The idea of Lear, like I, I was just kind of rolling it over in my head because, again, uh, to Jesse's point, like we're we're informed by what we see, and actually the thing that struck me, uh, just kind of thinking about it, and, and I agree with everything that Jesse said, was the one thing that stood out to me is why I'd almost think him a a younger man is that um, unless he built up that fortune through some you know worker or somehow suddenly inherited, I don't see him getting too old age because he never would hold on to his money. I mean, just just kind of as, as a point of almost sticking too close to the plot. And if you built up that money over the course of, you know, a 50-year career, you're not going to be handing it out to poets and painters and jewelers. You're going to be like, no, I'm retiring to South Florida and buying a beach house. Yeah, in, unless you've had some kind of life-altering event suddenly, which... I, I suppose is possible, but that's not, you know, part of the text. It's yeah. unlikely because he has his life altering event in the text. Yeah, there, there <laughs> you go. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He could like be. He's a trust um, fund kid. Or he won the lottery one day, or, you know, the rich uncle theory. Mm -hmm. You know, Timon's rich uncle died, and suddenly he got, you know, prime real estate in Athens and gobs of gold. 
Yeah, so so I, I guess in short that it just kind of you saying Lear was like, yeah, well, I, I can see the similarities, but like what Jesse said, is it, it was not actually where I would have uh, naturally gone, based in part on the production that we saw. And actually, to our kind of point, you don't know where Timon gets his money. He just has money until he doesn't, and then he finds money. And that's the only time you know where his money is coming from. Otherwise, it just sort of magically appears in his pocket until it stops. So it it's, it kind of does make him a little bit ageless. He doesn't talk about his career, you know. You think about Othello, and he tells you from where, like, where he came from and how he got there. And I mean, you're just gonna plop down into his life, and he has the stuff that starts the story. And and you also you you have Flavius, who's essentially been this kind of almost lifelong companion, this Horatio like character who's all, always been by his side. But that's not in in the perception of youth, if you are a young person, it doesn't matter. It's the amount of your life, the proportion of your life that's been spent with this person. So if I am 20 years old and Flavius has been with me for 10 years, you know, that's half my life. Like, that's an important thing. If I'm 60 and Flavius has only been with me for 10 years, that might not be as important. But if I'm 60 and he's been with me for 30 years, that that could be something. So again, I, like this, this nature of it, it's kind of a timeless piece so it, it, it almost um, it, it's one it's one more point about this play where you really have the opportunity to engage with it and kind of unlike some characters which based on the text that they have you know kind of define who they are or should be depending you know what directors decided to do with the play. Um, this one, at least in, in the text that we read, we didn't see something that specifically told you who this person was. We, we could be off base, but that was, that's what we saw, and that was in part based on the interpretation that, was, that we saw. Something that's appealing about Timon is, I mean, a lot of Shakespeare's well, and also characters your... suck. And I mean, Timon sucks. But Timon sucks in the same way that I suck. You know, like, it, it, it's really <laughs> interesting, because I'm like, he pulls something, I'm like, man, that's, that's really awful, dude. And then I'm like, I, I've done that exact same thing. It, it, it you know, it, it's tough to see your faults on stage, and you know, other characters they highlight them in such this you know beautiful way that you can sort of be like, oh, I'm watching you know the pains of humanity played out on this beautiful stage and time, and you're like, oh man, that was kind of crappy, and then you're like, that that's my day. That's 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 what I did when I picked up my coffee this morning. You know, it's it's so connectable it makes it makes it a satisfying and tough play to encounter because there's so much space for connection with time and i wonder if that's you know that's the intent behind the character is it he's simple but that makes him more universally relatable because well and this idea that he's so open in terms of we don't know very much about him makes him castable in any sort of way and then as we talked about there there's basically no women in the play there are some prostitutes that come to a party but they can be worked around does that having that sort of vagueness in terms of who who's in the play does that open up endless possibilities in terms of casting you know we're looking at in the news lately has been a lot of issues of gender casting and are there certain parts that women can play can't play there's a whole hullabaloo about her um malvolio is this a play where anyone can be anyone pretty much timon and let's be real we don't live in a post-gender society i think 
an audience will be less inclined to forgive Tymon if Tymon is played by a woman, just because culture and that's where we are. But that doesn't mean Tymon should not be played by a woman. And because Tymon is vague and because, you know, Tymon is alone, it's he's utterly alone in this play. I mean, you don't know his family. He never mentions them. You don't know his friends. You you know, you see these sets of three in the beginning who are false friends. You see the set of three in the end who are maybe real friends. Um, but he he's so alone that I think anyone can play him, but I it's I would love to see a female time in. I I really would. Um but I think this play, because you have all these vague characters in 2017, there's no reason to cast them all as men. You can cast them as anyone. And I think to that extent, in an ideal world, Tymon could be ta- cast as anyone too. And I'd love to see Tymon cast as female. It's, um, I think, a point that we've essentially drawn is that for better or worse, I guess, sex isn't really part of this play. Like, okay, dancers come in, but those, I mean, they could be, you know, aliens from the moon. It doesn't matter. The fact is they're there as entertainment. They're there as a set dressing. Um, And again, the prostitutes, like, I I think most of the time you see a cast based on kind of historical accident, historical precedent. It's not really unless someone is like purposely saying i'm making a statement using this play you you get such a traditional casting in this play when you don't really need to like the the gender specific statements are this this guy wants to marry my daughter it's not because it's this male uh behavior it's not like the aggression of this person or the vindictiveness of this person they are human emotions they're not uh, emotions that uh, uh, we have to or should uh, attribute to one gender or the other. I mean, Timon is not in his language and his story inherently male. And, you know, I mean, Hamlet, it, you struggle because Hamlet has, he doesn't really like women. Timon doesn't have this, you know, gender weighted either way. And it's, it might be what makes him so appealing because he's his language is so open that he or I'll say they that Tymon has this sort of space to be anyone and you don't really get that often in Shakespeare. I mean I I'm sure someone somewhere some Shakespeare fanboy in a comment section would flip out if there was a female Tymon, but I think audiences Again, I made the statement like they they might struggle, but I think with good casting, with good direction and with good performances, anyone could do this play in any part and it would be good. And I'll I'll bring up another example. Um, uh, Flavius, the Horatio to the um, Timon Hamlet Um, in the production we saw played by a woman. And, like, it did not seem to meaningfully impact the character in any way. And, like, yeah, you, you can you can make um, you can make arguments about, oh, the, the love between two men is kind of this one thing that can't be replicated by the love between a man and a woman. And having seen, you know, 
non-same genders play these two characters, it's like, based on the text, based on, you know, that interpretation of the language, it played out fine. It was completely believable. These characters, like, I, I knew, A, based on, you know, knowing how how many you know great female characters come out of Shakespeare like this that was not the original or at least as far as we can tell original intent of the character but I I kind of I thought it was a stronger interpretation because you see this character who you know takes what is that Horatio you know brother brothers to the end story almost and played by a woman and you kind of you get you get the ability to weave in all, all a potential tragedy and that this is someone who maybe there could have been more, but that's up to you as the audience and you as the production putting out there. And again, that's just one more thing you can do with this play, which, I mean, it, it's something that it's overlooked. It's not given the credit that this is something that's got flexibility in it. And that kind of ties back to the idea of staging that because this play has space to breathe, you can play with it a lot more um, with where you put things and who you put in those places. And, you know, you can, you can raise questions with the staging, which is what you should do with Shakespeare. You should raise questions. You should make it applicable to your audience. But I mean, Timon has space for you to put new conversations in, in a way that I hadn't really encountered with Shakespeare. It might be what made me like it so much or made it stick with me is because is there is space for play, there's space for conversation. And you were kind of making this point of, you know, you can just change your casting on this one. And you don't watch this play and be like, oh yeah, that's a traditional male role that they've cast with a female actor because it's 2017. You just watch it and you're like, that's the person who got cast for that part because she was fabulous. Well, and speaking of its vagueness and the sort of so many ways that each individual piece of time and can be interpreted, there isn't even consensus on where it fits in the canon. It was originally presented as a tragedy now it's often considered by a lot of scholars to be a problem play. Do you have an opinion um, on where between those two? I, I, I was actually thinking about this in, in preparation for the, uh, for us all talking, and I I feel today it's almost absolutely applicable as a satire. I, I know I've mentioned that before, but I was having a trouble reconciling that with Shakespeare's day. Like, like what's satirical about it wasn't something that was necessarily applicable to the world of Shakespeare. That being said, it kind of like, to me, it was like, well, it, it's almost this like attempt at a history was actually where I would have put it. Um, in, you know, it like, you know, fill a bucket, where do you put it? And I'd say, yeah, I'd, I'd toss it in with the histories almost, because, like, the, the histories aren't aren't necessarily completely factual accounts, but they're, like, historically Wait, set. Henry so. VIII isn't a completely factual account of that monarch's life? Mm. What? I'm shocked. <laughs> can, can we make a new category for uh, Shakespeare's plays called the Uncomfortable Truth category and stick time in, in that one? Um... 
but I I don't know I would feel it's a tragedy and <laughs> give my bad reading but one of Timon's kind of last lines in the speech that just hit me the hardest when I saw it and each time I read it, it hits me harder and harder is his a tree which grows here in my close that mine own use invites me to cut down and shortly I must fell it. And then he basically goes on to tell his friends that they can come and hang themselves from this tree before he cuts it down. And it's just like, oh, right in the heart, like just that opening line that I have a tree and you're like, okay, this is something alive. And you're like, Ooh, he's not, he's not talking about life anymore. Um, it's, it's, painful to hear that speech it's painful to read that speech and but it's not painful in a sad way because it, it's not it's painful in an uncomfortable way um if that makes any sense at all i'm sticking to my guns i i, I still would throw it in with tra- with history even though it certainly is applicable as a tragedy i don't know i feel like i hold history to a loftier standard having working in it myself yeah, but you know i'm just gonna Bias. Bias. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit of a trump card she just threw down. Um, well, Owen, you talked a little bit about this idea that it could read today as a satire, even though that was quite obviously not the intent. How much does authorial intent really factor in here? Because there are a lot of plays, the ones that come mostly to mind are Taming of the Shrew and Merchant of Venice, that history has totally redefined. And now, certainly the latter we play pretty much as a tragedy, and it was written as a rom-com. How much does what Shakespeare meant by time in matter when in 2017 it means something completely different with what you guys were talking about with social media and just no gold like our modern world almost seems to fit time indifferently well, you, Does it matter you have an interesting mean for all those things to you be have there? an interesting dichotomy you can certainly play it to kind of play it as almost as if a um a time capsule piece you can play it the way it was meant to be seen when it was originally written like you can you can go back and you can don your doublet and you know show off the show it off in the globe and you know get that authentic experience huzzah good for you um that sounds like something that would be on instagram not in a shakespeare play (laughs) but okay fine do that if that is your intent that is what you want to do that is your mission statement that is um your that's what drives you as a director have at it enjoy the experience i'm i'm from the camp that believes or you know feels strongly that Shakespeare wrote in an organic environment. He was writing for an audience that was in front of him because he needed to fill the seats. Get your butt in here and enjoy this play and come next week because I want to steal another shilling from you. Um, So the fact that many of his works have changed in their meaning, um, A, I think speaks to the strength of the writer um, and maybe speaks to us as an audience that we want to keep seeing new things. But in any case, we have a new way of interpreting this world. And like that, that's important. Like that, it, it, a message that, you know, said, you know, a hundred years ago, this is the way it is. And then you, you read the same words and this is the way it is means something completely different 
Today, that matters. In a hundred years, it might mean something completely different, assuming we're all here to read it in a hundred years. But yeah, I, I, I come down firmly on the side of it's organic, it changes. The interpretation today is something that has to be completely taken into account. Unless your mission is to play it as a time capsule piece, and then you're you are self excluding on purpose. And I think art lives; it, it's alive. If you want something that's unflinching and unchanging, science and mathematics are both great fields and important fields. But art, art's meant to speak to us. So I mean, the artist makes it for one reason to speak for themselves, and then they make it give to us as their viewer, as their audience, as their, you know, person seeing their work for us to encounter it and encapsulate it into ourselves. Um, so, I mean, these plays are written to live and they're written with space to be anachronistic. I mean, I always quote the line where, you know, Brutus and Julius Caesar, he talks about his doublet being embraced. And I mean, Nobody in ancient Rome was wearing doublets or tights or any of the other things they were wearing in Elizabethan England. You know, Shakespeare gives us space to make it our own in our time period. He, you know, and to his arrogance maybe or to his credit or to his genius, he wanted these to live and be applicable in 1600 and in 1800 and in 2017. Um, he, he wants to give them that sort of life beyond their immediacy and, and i'm sure as you know someone writing for a living if he could have this being shown in moscow and buenos aires whatever it was called at the actual time at poverty point louisiana and like he could get royalties for his play being played on all those places he'd make sure it was applicable to the audience clarification poverty point louisiana is one of the oldest human settlements in the continental united states so it wasn't really a city in 1500 because it's from like bc area yeah so what I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm making the point like anyone anywhere who would be willing to pay to see this he would like to cash in on their interest thanks history buff So, okay, <laughs> I'm about to ask the final question that I ask at the end of all of these episodes. Before we get I there, think, is there anything uh, else what we've been talking about with like social media and like a, a tweeting experience? Like, Time of Athens, like, I, I think it kind of lives to, today. I, I would, in a way, love to see it come back and get more popular. Um, just kind of because, like, this idea, like, I, I feel like. Hyman would never put his his cell phone down. Like literally, he would walk around and like have one of those plug-in mobile batteries, and he'd have like four of them in his pocket just to make sure he never missed what his followers were saying about him. Because like just this idea of being known and respected, and, and it wasn't necessarily this vanity thing. Because when he, if he saw that anyone he was, and he would follow everyone he could, but if he saw anyone that he wanted to, you know, help was in need, he would do what he can for him. I mean, of course, this equals someone who would put themselves in an early grave. Uh, again, going back to, um, it's for me, it's actually hard to picture an old timing. Um, in any event, like this, like our world today 
I feel can take some interesting lessons from this. And, and I really, um, I really encourage any work that can kind of get people thinking to be important. I mean, we're, we keep bringing up satire and satire, part of it, it only works if you think and you understand what's going on. Um, so that, that's kind of an intrinsic quality, but I also think there, there's, there's value here that, uh, we're, we're not only, you know, reviving art that's not necessarily gotten, you know, uh, prosperity or been a favorite of anyone lately, which, you know, gives it all kinds of avenues to come out again, but like it, it spoke to me and like, if it spoke to me in, in such a, a profound way that I, I would like to think is coming across like that that's that's a reason for me to tell someone else this spoke to me maybe it'll speak to you maybe not but give it a try it's it's interesting because i'm it's funny because we sort of started this whole conversation with us being like yeah Tyron's not that great of a play but that's that's inaccurate it's it sticks with you and it sticks with you in one of those odd ways where you know you see it and you're like Oh yeah, that was that was really good. And then you know, a week later, you're like, "Let me look up that one line." Or hold on, what did that one character say? And it sticks with you because it's relevant to you, and it it's relevant in a way that's different than you know a beautiful piece of art or something that speaks to you know this sort of innermost thoughts of your mind or explores the human condition is it, it it showcases it in this really relatable way and you know we live in a you know capital city we live in dc in this kind of government hub this you know place where we're touching sort of these visual presentations of what humans are and where you're getting this sort of double speak language all the time because that's the way politics works and that's what exposure to politics does and then it gets compounded with the you know we see that in our city and then we come home and we see it in our news feed and then we you know see it in the comment section of every news article we read and we see people who act like timing you know they're wonderful and they're happy and they're loving and then the next comment later they're angry at humanity and that you know digital flip-flop that we see that's you know encountered and it's funny we're more connected than ever and yet report after report comes out that people are lonelier than ever and I think Timon really speaks to that because you watch the whole play and Timon is alone the whole play and who in this world doesn't feel alone even when they're surrounded by people at some point in their life and so it, it weaves into this amazing narrative that I just can't shake off it's it's a play that just i can't shake it you know months later i'm still thinking about it and for something that i hadn't looked at twice before i saw it to not be able to shake it off for six months of my life is a really profound thing So over the course of the podcast, we've talked about different themes, different characters, some of the ways in which Timon is reshaped by history. At the end of the day, when you put all of this together, boil it down for me. What is you, Timon? You've got a hard about? you've you've got a hard question there, um, whether intentional or not, uh, based on based on a couple factors. A clearly, this is a piece that the meaning of it has evolved <laughs> over time, like. And, and clearly, from my perspective, I think I think it's evolved in 
a very profound way. Um, I have also said that, um, you know, like it, it, and again, having spoken to Jesse, it like the way it speaks to you can kind of really resonate with you as a person. So you can, you can boil it down to, all right, this is a simple story. This is a guy who gives away all of his money because he, he thinks it'll, it'll make him happy. And then when he realizes he's, you know, he, he's gone too far and he asks, you know, for a little help from people. And then he says, oh, everyone sucks because they're not going to help me. I'm going to burn the building down. Um, like, yeah, that's what happened. That's what if you boil it down and you don't really take take the time or the interest to really take your own personal interpretations of the language of the text and everything and kind of. So for me personally, if I want to take it down, like that, the satirical factor of this show is what uh, is what it means to me. It's like you look at the world and you you see what he said and you let it, you know, you let it live in you in a way and how you think and interact with the world. I mean, you know, it didn't occur to me until I was just listening to you speak. What is time about? Time is about stress. I mean, it really is. It's In the beginning, he's stressed that no one will like them, so he gives them up. <laughs> in the end, he's stressed because he doesn't think anyone yeah. likes them because he thought it was all fake. And it's the whole play, he's stressed out. Um, he's stressed, a, you know, in a million and one different real relatable ways and it's that sort of infinite stress because you have this stress of this character who's alone trying to not be alone and you know isn't that the kind of the the quest of the human to not be alone and we get to see time and encountering that stress that that journey of trying not to be alone and you know when he encounters that first road like hurdle that first roadblock of falsity you know the people he thought were his friends are false you know it breaks him it, he's broken by it and instead of you know in the second it's amazing when he's nice and friendly in the first half of the play he is you know surrounded by false people in the second half of the play where he's an angry angry you know person who hates everyone he encounters real people and it's He's so stressed out by this sort of engagement and this desire to first be around people and then this desire to abandon all people that he misses that sort of quintessential truth with the people he encounter engages with over the play because of that that stress. And I, I, I want to tie in a little bit, again, alluding to the, the production that we saw, um, the physicality of the actor can do some amazing things with the representation of that. In uh, again, the version that we saw at the Folger Shakespeare um, Library, it was incredible because every time someone went to him to like shake his hand, which he, it's this gesture for the guy who's giving you a gift, and like he froze up and he backed off, and it was like this. It, it was almost like this nervous tick, honestly. Like you uh, hypochondria, yeah, like germs or encounter. Uh, but you you look at that and you kind of you 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 get that it's not comical. At least that, that's how you saw it in this production. And 
in the second half when he's gone into exile and his stress has changed for uh, it's evolved into something new it goes away and kind of the it's almost a subtle distinction that is completely unsubtle in its uh, presentation but it has at the same time kind of a profound impact and yeah, it, it, I think it's an amazing representation of what Jesse was just saying that it's about this guy whose world is stressed and even when he burns the building down, he doesn't get away from it. And, and that, that's kind of a, a profound thing in and of itself. And he never learns. Like, you know, it's unsatisfying because Tymon doesn't learn anything from the start of this play to the end. Like, you know, we're, we encounter this character and he changes profoundly. But he never learns anything new and we as the audience don't learn anything new with him you know it it gives you no answers at the end and for a play that you know if we're going to make this argument that we've kind of realized as we talk about that it's about stress that's not a satisfying ending where you you start this play you know on stress we'll say and you end it with no answers and the character has learned nothing and maybe you learn something as the audience, but it's not spoon fed to you in the language. It's not spoon fed to you by the playwright. It's definitely not spoon fed to you by the main character. You, whatever you take away from this play, you have to get away. It's, it's not given to you in any way. And I, I might, I might assume more than anything else that stress was not necessarily the, the way we deal with stress today is not necessarily the way uh, Elizabethan England dealt with it. But I mean, they, I, I, I would, I would love to hear what, you know, some historically, you know, historical Shakespearean, you know, uh, production historian would say about that. Cause like it, it really does kind of have this through line that goes through the whole play. And yeah, I guess if it's it's a commentary on human nature, I mean, humans don't change. What was true for Titus, or not Titus, excuse me, Timon. I knew I was going to make that mistake this whole time, and I finally did it right at the end. Uh, this is, you know, what's true for Timon when he kind of encounters his humanness is true for us, even if the stage on which we live our lives are drastically different than the stage someone would have lived on in ancient Greece or Elizabethan England. You know, it, it, there's going to be a truth there that's universal across time. But this play doesn't tell you what that is. It just makes you start that conversation with yourself. So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is the website. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.